0: turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 7 through 12 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaking says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power... Belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Let's pray together. Father, as we read your word this morning and as we <clears throat> hear it expounded, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in our own hearts that we might receive your word with reverence and awe. Uh, that we would see it for the treasure that it is. We pray as well, Father, that we would be able to hide that treasure in us uh, with a greater zeal and passion, Lord. We pray that uh, your gospel would be seen so clearly in in our lives, Lord, that not only we would be assured of, of your Holy Spirit's indwelling in us, but that others would be as well, that we would see the power and the glory of God at work in your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2010, there were three large planter pots that all were brought for valuation by their respective owners. All three of them had been used as umbrella stands in their respective homes. And yet, for some reason, that same year, all three of them brought those same planter pots to be evaluated. And all three of them turned out to be exquisite 18th century Ming vases. Now, normally I would call them vases. But once you find out how much they're worth, I think you'd agree they should be called vases instead. The first one sold for $616,000, but would have been worth much more had it not been overly abused by the umbrellas in the stand. The second one was a little older and, and less worn, sold for $20 million. And a third, which is even more unique, almost in perfect condition, sold for $64.5 million. All three of them had been purchased uh, about a decade or so prior for just hundreds of dollars, not knowing what they had bought. All three of them were priceless. Of course, every primitive culture has made these types of works of art, and sometimes they're lost for many years. Uh, Most of them are, are made out of pottery, some type of ceramic, but... Just as many as there are of works of art, there are many more uh, pieces of pottery that were used for simple, ordinary uh, purposes. Ancient Jews and Gentiles alike made various plates and bowls, cups and pitchers, even even, uh, lamps to light their houses were made out of clay, a type of jar. But the the, the most common artifact in the home that was made out of clay was just the, the plain old jar of clay. Used for many, many purposes to store many different things. You could sort of think of the clay pot like our modern Tupperware, if you will. But maybe not quite uh, Tupperware, because Tupperware can be expensive nowadays. Maybe the Rubbermaid version that you find at Walmart for less than a dollar for one particular item that maybe you're willing to bring food to someone else's house using the Rubbermaid container and maybe not be concerned if it's returned to you. That type of uh, item would be comparable to the common-day clay jar. But every now and then, in ancient times, people would use those same clay jars to store their valuables. Why? For the very reason that thieves might not think of looking there because they're so common. And so it would be like anything else. It's right in plain sight, and yet there's treasure hidden there. It's this type of scenario that the Apostle Paul has in mind in our text this morning. He's not saying that somehow we are all, as Christians, like Ming vases that are meant to be put in a museum of some sort, but rather that we are more like these common clay pots in which a great treasure has been placed inside of inestimable value many of you may be surprised to find that the Greek word for treasure, as it's used here, is a word that you're already very familiar with, at least in passing. It's often used for the name of a book that serves as a common companion to our normal dictionary. It's a word that is used to give you a list of many synonyms and antonyms. You've heard of it before. It's called a thesaurus. Right? The word thesaurus is the actual word that Paul is using here in the Greek to refer to a treasure. But why in the world would we call our book of synonyms and antonyms a treasure? It doesn't make sense at all, especially if you're not a fond of words. Uh, but if you have to think of it this way, a thesaurus is sort of a, a storehouse or treasury of words kept in one place so that you might find just the right word that would be so fitting that it would be, as Proverbs says, like apples of gold and settings of silver, right? It's a treasury of words. And in this particular case, Paul's not speaking of just any word as being a priceless treasure, but rather God's word is somehow placed inside of these clay pots to show something very, very valuable. Uh, Perhaps you remember the Dead Sea Scrolls, were found in 1946 inside common clay pots, clay jars. They had been hidden inside a cave for thousands of years, and all of a sudden they were found, and, and these uh, old documents were still there. In fact, uh, the reason why they were put in the clay jars in the first place is because they are already old and worn to begin with. And so the, the Jews would often sort of give them a proper burial by putting them in a clay jar and hiding them away. These were not the ones that they used regularly, but the ones that they used to use and no longer were in use and didn't know what to do with them. It's God's word. You don't just throw God's word away. So they would store them in these clay jars. But again, it's not just uh, any word that Paul is speaking of here, but rather particularly the gospel that points to Christ that has been placed in these common jars. It's interesting if you actually were to buy a fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls today. And when I mean a fragment, I mean even just one word or maybe perhaps a phrase of a collection of it. It would be sold on the marketplace for about a million dollars. Just for a fragment of it. Now that's the literal sense of it. But here Paul is saying even more to have the gospel inside of you is well beyond that in terms of value. Jesus had previously referred to the worth of the gospel in Matthew chapter 13 uh, verse 44 when he compared the kingdom of God or the, 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 the gospel of the kingdom to a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it he quickly covered it up and then if you remember he went and sold all that he had in order to purchase this field that he might find and have this treasure for himself. He uses A similar analogy immediately afterwards of the merchant in search of fine pearls, and he finds one pearl of great price. He goes and sells all that he has in order that he might purchase it. This is what Paul is speaking of here, and also what he was speaking of in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, when he said he had suffered the loss of all things in order that he might gain this gospel, this treasure. In other words, every treasure he had ever had, he said, I'm going to throw it all away in order that I might have this thing of great price. The gospel, indeed, for the believer, is a treasure that is priceless. And when they have believed in the gospel, that treasure somehow is placed inside of them in common clay pots. Why use this analogy? Paul's not the first one to compare human beings to pottery, If you remember, uh, ancient Job would refer to all men as those, he says, dwell in houses of clay. And he admits, even in regards to his own self, that he was pinched off from a piece of clay. Um, Prophet Isaiah likewise said, Lord, you are the potter, we are the clay, we are the work of your hands, right? Of course, that illustration isn't far-fetched at all, given the fact that the way Moses even describes the The creation, the Genesis account, is that God had breathed life into Adam as he came from the dust, and then as soon as his life is taken from dust, he came to dust, he shall return. So clay is not uh, uh, an illustration that doesn't seem fitting. But here, Paul is not really focusing necessarily just on our mortality when he refers to us as clay pots but rather the fact that he is putting something that is very, very valuable in something that's very, very common. Again, uh, he's not uh, putting this treasure in mink vases. He's putting this treasure in rubber-made variety of people. Um, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 29. He tells the believers in Corinth, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So instead of, again, God choosing mink vases, He basically chooses bargain buys from goodwill. That's what the average Christian is in the eyes of the world. He chooses the weakest and most frail pieces of pottery. He says in verse 7, why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to whom? To God and not to us. So you see the gospel of the knowledge of Christ Is not only valuable, but exceedingly strong and powerful, he says. And he wants to put that strength on full display, and in order to do that, he chooses the weakest vessels. Once someone asked St. Francis how he was able to accomplish so much in his ministry, and here was his reply. He says, perhaps the Lord looked down from heaven and said, where can I find the weakest, littlest man on earth? Then when he saw me, he said, I found him, and he won't be proud of it, for he'll see that I am only using him because of his great insignificance. The Greek word that's translated is power, another word that you're familiar with. I like being able to give you Greek words that you already know. The word here that's used in the Greek for power is the word dunamis from which we get our English word, what? Dynamite great, great power. But it's a word that's generally only used in reference to a divine heavenly power. It's not a power, it's not a word that's used in reference normally to the strength of men. In fact, it's the word that's often used to describe the miracles that Jesus performs. It's this dynamite power, something that is extraordinary. It's a tremendous power that only comes... From above, when we pray the Lord's Prayer at the end, for thine is the kingdom and the power. We're not talking about any ordinary power. We're talking about a divine, heavenly power. It only belongs to you, O Lord. It's the same word in the Greek that Luke uses in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus is telling his disciples, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Paul uses this word for power again and again in both of his epistles to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5, he tells the church at Corinth that he didn't come preaching with any lofty speech or wisdom, but only of Christ and him crucified. And he shares that he did this how in great weakness, fear, and trembling and yet in a demonstration of the spirit and of the power of God so that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in God's power likewise second corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 he reminds the believers in corinth of the many afflictions that he experienced in asia And how he was so utterly burdened beyond his own strength or power. And yet, God's power sustained him. Therefore, Paul goes on later in this epistle to boast in his weakness. Why? So that God's power might rest more fully upon him. Paul is not at all afraid of his weakness because that's when he receives more of God's Power. It's this divine and heavenly power of God that somehow is now hidden in these weak, frail clay pots to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. But why is Paul calling himself and others clay pots in this manner? Again, because those who have been coming into the church, those Judaizers, those uh, men pleasers, if you will, have snuck into the church and have been accusing Paul again and again of being weak. You're just a weak man. You're not like the other apostles. You don't have the same power, the same authority, the same strength and wisdom that these others do. You have no right even to call yourself an apostle. You see, they they bought into what often is referred to as a theology of glory as opposed to what is often called the theology of the cross. To summarize, uh, theology of glory is is always focused on the individual himself. It's this idea of focusing on one's own confidence, one's own strength, one's own victories and and their obedience unto God. It's always this works-based view of man. I've done something, I should be able to glory because I'm I'm getting better. In fact, the theologian of, of glory always assumes that he is getting better, spiritually speaking. And as a result, he expects that God will always bless him physically, materially, and otherwise, and that somehow he should be able to rest in his bed of roses because he is right with God. He's done what he's supposed to do. It's always based upon his attempts, you see. It's a theology of glory, gaining something for himself. On the other hand, a theologian of the cross is not focused upon himself. He's not focused upon his own merits. But solely upon Christ, and you'd say his merits, but particularly focusing upon Christ's love, his suffering, and even his humiliation upon the cross. It's a theology that's completely wrapped up in the cross of Christ. The call of Christ and the the theology of the cross is not a call to victory, humanly speaking, but rather a call to suffering and even death as one takes up his cross to follow Jesus. Because Paul is a theologian of the cross, he's not afraid to admit his weaknesses. He's not afraid to admit his frailty and his shortcomings, even his sins, because he's not relying upon himself. He's relying upon God's strength, God's power, God's salvation in Christ. Notice in verses 8 and 9, Paul's continually using passive verbs in these two verses, to show how outside forces have acted upon him, exposing somehow his weakness and the weakness of his co-laborers in Christ. They're not afflicting others through their actions. They're not perplexing others through their logic. They're not pursuing and striking down their enemies in great victory. Rather, he says, they are being afflicted in every way. They are perplexed By the evils that they're enduring. They're persecuted by the powers that be and even struck down for the sake of the gospel at times. Paul here is freely admitting his impotence, his vulnerability, his weakness, in order that he might testify more fully to God's power, God's glory as it's displayed in the midst of that weakness. He says, yes, indeed, we have been afflicted. In fact, uh, later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he will share this. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Do you think this is something that a normal leader wants to share with all of his people? By the way, I'm constantly fighting and I'm afraid. <laughs> That's something that a theology of glory just cannot comprehend. Why would you share that weakness? You're obviously showing that you're not worthy of following, if you will. But that's Paul's whole point. He doesn't want you to follow him. He wants you to follow Christ. He's pointing away from him to Christ. Unlike his detractors, he's not pretending to be something that he's not. He's not pretending to be confident all the time. He's not pretending to be so strong and so full of authority, but rather he's constantly showing them how he has to look to Christ. Then in verse 9, he admits, we're perplexed. You ever been perplexed? It seems like the older I get, the more perplexed I am. There's just so many things in this world that I thought I knew and thought I had figured out, and then the more they get complicated, I'm thinking, I just, oh, I wish I knew the answer to how to fix this. And as a man, I can't fix it. And the more I grow, the more I realize I can't really fix anything. It's perplexing. Sin itself is perplexing. Our culture is perplexing. I don't understand how people think. I don't understand where our world is going. I don't understand how it ends. I don't know. And that leads me to have to turn to the one who does. I can't figure it out. And that's what Paul is saying. He's, he's perplexed when all of this evil is all around him. And, and yet, nevertheless, he's, he's not in despair. In fact, the, the word that he uses there is a word that's often used of drunkards. They, they're so bewildered by their circumstances in life, they just turn to drink in hopeless despair. He's saying, I'm perplexed, but that doesn't lead me to despair. It leads me to Christ. In the same manner, he says in verse 9, we were persecuted or literally chased down, hunted like prey. Again, this, this runs contrary to the theology of glory in every way. How could you call yourself a leader if you're being chased down by people left and right? And yet, he says, the Lord delivered us from their snares, keeping his promise not to forsake us. Finally, he says, we were struck down whether that's by rods or stoning or even the fist of men. And yet we weren't destroyed by this. Again, Paul sharing all of this with the church in Corinth to turn the argument of his detractors upside down. They, they, they simply don't get it. The idea of Christianity to them is contrary to the very idea of the cross. They want glory. They don't want suffering. They want to prove their power in some way by lording it over others, by demanding that they give them a certain amount of money to prove that they are worthy in their sight. But yet Christ didn't come in that way. He didn't come to lord it over them. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, Paul even shares in in verse 10, he says, we are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Again, the, 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 the word, I, I try not to focus too much on the Greek all the time with you guys, but uh, in this particular case, the Greek is just fascinating in this passage. I'm sure it's fascinating in all the other passages, but I don't get it, I guess. But in this particular case, the word for death in the Greek doesn't refer to the final breath, if you will, or the final heartbeat of a man, uh, but rather to the process of dying. So Paul is saying that he's slowly dying each day uh, to his flesh. He's slowly taking on more and more of the mindset of, of Christ and taking up his cross on a Daily basis. Unlike Stephen, for instance, or unlike James, who when they were persecuted, they were immediately put to death. Paul is saying, I'm slowly dying every day. Every single time I open my mouth and declare the gospel of Christ, I am facing death. Not just from my enemies, but from my own self. I'm dying to myself whenever I hear the gospel again. Again, it's proving Paul's point. Again, he's just a clay pot. He's frail. He's, he's fragile. And eventually he's going to turn to dust. And yet his mortality, his fragility is putting God's power and glory on display. Verse 11, he says, We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Even the fact that his life is often in danger shows that he has to continue to look to the one who gives him his next breath, his next heartbeat. In fact, um, in another passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 36, he's quoting from the psalm, Psalm 44, verse 22, says this, As it is written, for your sake, O Lord, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So contrary to his detractors with this theology of glory, always sort of presenting themselves as lions or some other creature, as the king of the jungle, if you will, Paul is associating with the weakest of creatures, those that are often sacrificed and those that are prey. He says, literally, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus as I continually take up my cross. And follow him. My suffering is evidence of the power and glory of Christ within. One, one commentator, James Phillip, put it this way He says, Our lives are meant to reflect the death of Christ in such a way that men are somehow reminded of Calvary. We are to be signposts to Calvary, and our lives must say to men, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the theology of the cross. When people look at us, they shouldn't say, behold, look at the lion. Look how strong he is. Look how great and awesome he is. Rather, look at the lamb. It's pointing outside of the weakness of the individual to something stronger within. Verse 12, he says, uh, we might expect Paul to say this in in closing, so death is at work in us, but life is also at work in us. But that's not what he said. Look look again at verse 12. He says instead, so death is at work in us, but life in you. This too is in line with this theology of the cross. For Christ himself dies, why? To bring life to others. We suffer. We're persecuted. We go through all sorts of discomfort and sadness why not just for ourselves but for the sake of others in this manner we're called to die to ourselves in order to bring life to others we're called to suffer to bring comfort to others as paul said in the very beginning of this epistle our, our our sufferings have brought you comfort our afflictions have brought you comfort but if we if we follow the theology of glory and we live for ourselves to prove ourselves to other people will never be a blessing to anyone. If we merely seek to protect ourselves and protect our reputation, protect these things, we'll never love others. It's only as we die to ourselves that we begin to understand what it means to love God, to love neighbor. It's a totally different outlook altogether. In this this case, Paul didn't want the Corinthians to forget the very fact that they had benefited again and again by his sufferings because they began to buy into the arguments of his detractors. Oh, yes, he's just weak. That's all he is. And, and he's reminding them, it's through my weakness that you have become strong. It's through my sufferings that you have found comfort. It's through my sacrifices that you have found Christ and have been saved. What did his detractors do for them on the other end? Nothing, but lorded over them and try to enslave them all over again. Paul didn't do any of these things, of course, to glorify himself. He was just a frail, inferior clay pot. The real treasure is what's inside, the gospel of Christ that he preached. He didn't proclaim himself. He proclaims Jesus Christ and Paul as his servant. For all of us who are believers today, it's the same pattern. We're called in the same manner to be his chosen instruments, his clay pots to to bear his name, to bear his cross before others. And so we're told literally in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, let that treasure dwell in this clay pot so richly that everybody can see it. Because it's the power inside that people ought to be impressed with not with the man who's carrying the treasure. So if you remember the full story of Gideon, we started to read some of it this morning. You'll recall that Gideon originally was hiding when the Lord called him, right? He was hiding from the Midianites who were raiding the land. And the angel of the Lord found him while he was hiding. And at first his greeting to him was, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Right? And you're thinking... The Lord is with you, O oh, cowardly man, you know, in that sense. But the angel sees something that Gideon doesn't yet see. And then he gives him this command Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Again, what might? What might does he have? He doesn't have any might, doesn't seem like. And immediately Gideon himself begins to wonder maybe you meant the, a different Gideon, different guy. Because he begins to try to work his way out of it, trying to make excuses. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least, even in my own father's house. What do I have? I'm not strong. And yet the Lord says to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. One man against all of these raiding tribes. Tens of thousands of men? Of course, as you recall, Gideon, after being told this, asked for a number of signs. Are you sure? Let's prove this. Give me two or three signs to, to prove that what you're saying is, is right, because I, I, don't, I don't believe it. And finally, after all these confirming signs are given to Gideon, then he gathers up 32,000 men to go and fight against the Midianites. And again, the Lord... Uh, confounds Gideon, saying things to him he doesn't understand, that he says, the people that you have are too many (laughs) Uh, for me to give the many knights into your hand, lest Israel boast, saying, my own hand has saved me, and so he gives the command to Gideon, telling everyone who's fearful, trembling, let them go home, and as you see, 22,000 of the 32,000 say, yeah, I don't need to do this, and they go home. 10,000 are left and then the Lord gives him another confounding command. Now he says again you got too many men and decides to break them up by how they drink their water. Some drinking putting kneeling down and drinking it directly, others putting the water to their hands, the ones who's got the water put to their hands. Now only 300 are left in Gideon's army. Now to throw one more wrench into the plan, he now tells those 300 not to carry any weapons. I mean, it's no different than the Israelites being told, let's go to the edge of the Red Sea and let's wait for the Egyptian army to come. No weapons. Same concept. No weapons. He says, in your left hand, hold a trumpet. In your right hand, hold a clay jar. It's got fire inside. Again, the the jar is breathable, so the fire can still burn inside but be covered up so you can't see it. When the Midianites are fast asleep, Gideon tells his men to blow their trumpets to break their clay pots revealing the fire beneath. And then what are they to yell? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. What sword? There's no sword around. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Where is this power coming from? And immediately we're told that every Midianite came out of his tent and begins to run wildly in fear and then begins to attack the other men because he thinks that they're the enemy. And so they're all killing each other. And finally, the rest that are remaining run away. And, and finally, the Israelites are told to pick up their swords and go clean up the rest. Where did the power come from? It didn't come from within them. They were weak. They had no power. They had very few men, and they had no weapons to prove that the power came from God. What does this have to do with Paul's illustration? Uh, well, if you remember that the jars were broken in order that the light might shine more brightly. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, "The, the common pattern for Christian ministry is this, there has to be brokenness in the Christian life so that the resurrection light of the Lord Jesus might be able to shine out of us to illumine others and cause them to see through the darkness the gloriously bright face of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, is Paul using this illustration to say, we're just the clay jar in this picture. What's inside is more important, the fire, the light, the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is not a theology of glory. If your whole life you're trying to think, hey, I'm going to make myself better, you're not understanding this passage at all. A theology of cross says what's inside that jar, the treasure that's inside, that is glorious. That is worthy of praise. We're just the, the weak, frail clay pot that God uses to put that on display. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the treasure that is inside. We pray that you would help us to understand uh, the glory uh, And the power that is available. We pray, Father, that you would help us to put that on display. That we would not continue to seek to make something of ourselves, that we would not continue to try to prove ourselves, that we would not seek to compare ourselves with others, but rather that, Lord, that you would continue to help us to see ourselves clearly in light of your word, that as we see, Christ more clearly, we see his glory, his strength, his power, his wisdom, his love, his perfections, and in comparison see our thousands and thousands of blemishes and weakness and fear, Lord, may the power of Christ rest more fully upon us, and may the name of Christ be praised, we ask in Jesus' name, amen won't you stand with me let's see our final hymn oh the deep deep love of jesus
1: oh the deep deep love of jesus has done boundless free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me underneath me all around me is the current of Thy love Like glorious rest of oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. He loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, never. We watch it, so His so loved ones die to call them holy. All his own. how poor that need interceded watch it throw them from the throne. The deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every, love of grace. Tis, tis an ocean, in vast of oh blessing. Tis a haven, sweet of oh grace. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. So our oh oh, is to up to glory, for it me up to thee.
0: You can be seated. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread. When he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're always being told to remember what Christ has done so that we won't think that it's all up to us, as well as to proclaim his death. His death is so essential To the gospel story. We don't just proclaim the victory, but we reclaim the means through which he obtains the victory, the suffering, the cross. It's not just the outcome. It's the pattern, even for the Christian life. In order for us to understand what it means to have fellowship with Christ, we also have to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. And when he invites us to share with him from his communion meal, We are sharing with him in all aspects of the gospel story. As we die to ourselves, we are resurrected to a new life in Christ Jesus, a life of hope and joy and love and peace, but only as we die to ourselves. So I invite all of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and are members of any evangelical church in good standing to come and share this meal with us today. If that doesn't apply to you and Uh, You have yet to profess the name of Jesus Christ publicly and receive him into your heart. Come talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to explain the gospel more fully to you. But in the meantime, stay with us, observe, and see the power of Christ on display. Let's pray together. Father, we ask as we take uh, the bread and the cup... Lord, that indeed we would proclaim the death of our Lord. Just remember, we're all. We would not anything we can add. In, in any new you have stains to talk. Father, we have peace you, but your son is done. Other, that we have to use of what you are. to be with you, in peace with you, able name. The were we all the same. The elders to come.